So, we're back with Clemens and Musker. You may remember them as the duo who brought us Little Mermaid. And Aladdin, actually. <laughs> this is actually funny to me. Obviously, the two do good work. They made Little Mermaid and Aladdin. But the funny thing is, they didn't actually really want to do this one at first. So, a while ago, they had a treatise... Not they. Disney as a whole had a treatise on an idea of a story based on the Odyssey. And they're like, well, maybe we could focus it down a little bit more, make it more about the Trojan War in particular. Okay. Maybe we can focus in on Heracles, make him more of the main character. Okay. Um, you know what? Let's just leave this on the, the bench for a while. Because this is what Disney would do for a while there. They would come in with story ideas, and they'd just leave them on the bench until it came time to select a new animated feature to work on. And they'd look at what they have on the bench and be like, eh, you know, and select one. Now... <clears throat> Meanwhile, Clements and Musker, they were trying to make a film, uh, you've probably never heard of it, called Treasure Planet. Now here's the funny part. You may or may not be aware of the fact that they were trying to make Treasure Planet back in the late 80s. Before they even worked on Little Mermaid, they were already doing some of the thought ideas and were trying to pitch Treasure Planet. They were turned down. And then they were turned down, and then they were turned down, uh, like, I think five times total. Finally, it came here, and they had done Aladdin, which was a smash success. They'd done Little Mermaid, smash success. And they're like, look, we have done so much, okay? We want to work on Treasure Planet. And they were like, Ugh. and for some reason, and it's I've never actually been able to find out a good reason why. For some reason, the money people didn't have any idea. They, they were like, no, no, we're not going to go with that. Finally, finally, they were like, okay, 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 make you a deal. You give us one final commercially successful film, and in exchange for that, we will go ahead and greenlight Treasure Planet. They were like, fine. So they went to the bench, they saw what was there, and they were like, what about that Odyssey story? We could take that. Why? Well, because it'd be a superhero story. Now, this is also kind of part of the changing cinema landscape of the 90s. Some of you may or may not remember this, but from the 90s to the aughts was when superhero films suddenly became more acceptable. I know that sounds strange, but first of all, if you've seen the old superhero films, you know why they weren't considered acceptable. But more to the point, superhero films in general had a really bad uh, reputation as being crap, basically. In fact, Tim Burton's Batman has been argued to be the first film that started the beginning of that change in perception. You know, it's silly, campy, ridiculous, and stupid. It's nothing for actual, you know, there's no real artwork there, right? There's no actual, you know, creative genius or power or pathos or impact or anything. It's, it's, just, it's just, you know, nickel, nickel films, right? But that perception had been changing ever since Tim Burton's Batman, which, I, yes, I know that was early 80s, but it's, it was kind of a slow shift until finally, you know, it started becoming more in vogue. I actually mentioned Batman Forever when it came to Pocahontas recently. And while that one didn't exactly do all that well, it kind of helps to showcase how the very concept of a superhero film was becoming more and more acceptable. This is also when they'd already started work on things like the X-Men series and the Spider-Man series. So you can see how they're like, yeah, we'll do this. We'll do this as a superhero film. Now, I'm going to go ahead and admit something. I actually really like Hercules. I'd say it's probably my third-ish favorite of this particular bundle of films we've been going through so far. Obviously, I haven't rewatched Mulan or Tarzan yet, so those might surpass it. But I have rewatched Hercules a lot, because I actually rather like this film. 
And I don't think I ever really noticed how its structure is fundamentally different than all the others. Because it is structured like a superhero film. We even have an origin story. Origin story, training montage, you know, darkest point, and then rising up to become a true hero. It's, it's the classic arc, really. I mean, compare the narrative beats to this from this film to, say, Sam Raimi's Spider-Man, the first one, right? Anyways, <clears throat> so they took this and they ran with it because they wanted to do this superhero take on it. And they did, uh, they, they got in a lot of professionals and a lot of consultants to l learn about Greek history. And then after studying Greek history and Greek mythos extensively, they decided to throw all that out the window. <laughs> now, forgive me. I've studied Greek mythos, and I agree with them completely. <laughs> it's, it's just, unlike the Pocahontas thing, this one actually makes me laugh quite a bit. Because, yeah, Greek mythos is messed. Very, very messed up. So what they basically did is, is they did probably the first really true reimagining concept that Disney did. Now, I know that sounds like a weird thing. I'll talk more about that in a minute. They also, this is going to sound strange, they were trying to find inspiration for how to characterize the middle part of Hercules. You know where they got inspiration from? Michael Jordan. I'm not kidding. I mean, there's the obvious Nike joke, which itself is a Greek joke. Uh, but the, And there's also the Air Herx, right? That's a direct parallel. But they really were using the massive star power and popularity of Michael Jordan as a as a thing for how to present him. And since Jordan always presented himself as a decent guy in public they kind of went with the same take with Herc. I say that that way because I have no idea if Michael Jordan's a decent person or not. I've never looked into him, so I wouldn't know. But he always came across as a decent person in public, so Herc is a decent person. Very simple. This is actually funny, though. So, with this all in place, they had to figure out casting. Now, Susan Egan, or Egan? E-G-A-N. I'm going to go with Egan. Susan Egan had been trying to audition for these films since Beauty and the Beast. She was one of the women who auditioned for Belle. And she had auditioned in every single film between then and now. All of them. And she was universally turned down. Now, when she found out this was happening, she was like, Okay, I am going to play this role, damn it. I am tired of being turned down for this. And their first thought was, no, no, no. Belle is sweet and nice and kind. We need Meg to be different. She's like, oh, I can do different. And so she auditioned, and they were like, we'll think on it. They did eventually cast her, obviously, but it just, God, you feel for the woman. It's a good thing they got her, too, though. She does an excellent job of Megara here. But the one they were really having trouble with Hades. Now, I mentioned how starting with starting again with Little Mermaid, they do voice lines, then they do animation, right? But they had obviously already had sketches, and they already had you know, storybooks, and they already had a script. So Hades, well, in the original film, he was probably what you're picturing when you think of the devil. You know, smooth, calm. Evil. Would you like to make a deal for dear Megara? You know, that, just the classic type one villain type of thing, right? Then James, so, okay, hang on. So actually, I'm sorry, before we get to James Woods, they brought in Jack Nicholson. And Jack Nicholson was like, yeah, I'll do this, sure. Uh, he was refer referred by Danny DeVito, who'd already been signed on. So Nicholson's like, alright, here's my asking offer. 
or here's my asking price. Now I forget exactly what it is, but it was in the millions and half of the merchandising rights to any Hades merchandise. That was way too much for one actor, like by many factors. So they were like, eh, no. This is probably a good time to mention that Hercules was coming in at a weird point financially for Disney. It's not like Disney as a whole was doing bad. It's just they were at a point where they were trying to push... You know what? I don't actually feel like getting into this. For Long and the short is they pulled back the budget on Hercules, even though they probably shouldn't have. This is admittedly probably the beginning of the end of the Disney Renaissance right here, because if you're paying attention, for all of his many flaws, the guy whose name I keep forgetting what his name is, I'm going to go back in my notes to check it here, Katzenberg, his big thing, and the idea he championed was spend the money, spend the talent, spend the resources, make an excellent film, it sells well. And that was his big shtick. By this point, he is gone, and he has been gone even before Hercules really got going. He was involved in the very, very, very beginnings of Hercules' development, and then he was gone. By this point, Disney had started to tighten the belt a little bit on their animation department. Now, there are long-term reasons for this, and this would directly lead into the whole Pixar thing, but the long and the short of it is there's a reason why the Disney Renaissance kind of peters out in overall quality, and why, in my opinion, it would be another nine years or so before they would actually start to push out quality films again. And it's because, well, they stepped away from that mentality. They stopped being the, okay, we're going to spend the talent, spend the resources, spend the time, and we're going to make the right, the really good films. And they were more like, well, well, I mean, you know, what can you do with a smaller budget? As I've said before, proper management is not actually about how much you have and how much you're given. It's about proper management. Now, thankfully, this film, under the, the team of Clements and Muscar, who are veterans and were bringing most of their squad and staff with who they worked with, so they were veterans. Basically, they had a very talented staff and they had good management, so they were able to make this thing work. But this film actually went over budget. Now, they grudgingly decided to go ahead and allow the film to go forward despite going over budget. But that kind of says something about this particular shift in mentality when it comes to Disney's animated productions. Now, I bring all this up because obviously the Nicholson thing was too much. Uh, frankly, I think he was too, asking too much, even if they, you know, weren't pulling back the belt. But so they bounced around to a lot of people. When I say a lot of people, I mean upwards of ten. It was just, nah, no, 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 no. James Woods comes in. And he does it in his own words like a used car salesman. And they were like, well, no, this isn't Hades. Hang on, can you do that line again, Mr. Woods? Can you do that line again? This is actually pretty good. Hey, hand him, hand him the scene 13 script. There you go, there you go. Hey, could you read for this real quick? Yeah, sure, sure. This is really good. So they rewrote and reanimated and restructured the entire character of Hades to match James Woods' portrayal of Hades because they loved his shtick so much. In fact, one of the, the things that was a problem was James Woods speaks so quickly, they were having trouble properly animating it. Now, I know a lot of everyone likes James Woods for real-life reasons, and that's fine and valid. You know, RL is RL. But the man is really good as Hades, in my opinion. He is... There's a reason Hades is possibly one of my favorite Disney villains ever. 
like just across everything. And uh, just to add a little anecdote here, James Woods has gone on record as saying that Hades is his favorite character he's ever played. This is why every time it's come up for him to play it, he says yes. This is why every single Kingdom Hearts game, with very few exceptions, has Hades in it, who is voiced by James Woods because he was so eager to voice the role again. And it's why, if it, and so again, this is the second time this is true, by the way, the, the, the love Hades has of this role is why Hades, the character, is such a major player in the Kingdom Hearts mythos. If it wasn't for James Wood's enthusiasm, they never would have got him for Kingdom Hearts 1, and then the subsequent games, and so he, they actually developed him to a more of a character because of the fact that they kept bringing the actual actor back and they loved working with him. Just interesting to comment on. Oh yeah, one final anecdote. When the film was being considered for cancellation because of the budget issues I mentioned earlier, James Woods offered to refund his entire salary just to keep the film afloat. Basically doing it for what would actually be the minimum, which I believe at this point was 80000 Which sounds like a lot of money, and it is, but given the budgets they were working with was nothing, basically. And he was willing to just drop down and give all that money right back to the studio so they could get the film made. Now, they ended up not doing that. Because, again, they weren't actually in financial straits. They were just tightening the belt because they're stupid. I just thought I'd share that little anecdote. One last thing, though. Uh, two last things, excuse me. So they, they brought in uh, several consultants to do what they call Greek vase style, or vase if you prefer, style art. So you notice just about everyone in this is extremely stylized. This is actually the first Disney film to do this. Uh, the only other one that comes close in comparison is actually Aladdin. And that, most of the people still looked like human beings. In this film, they actually deliberately made as many people as they could to look like paintings that are walking around. And that very unique art style is part of the reason why this film has such a unique look to it. And apparently it was a lot of work and a lot of effort. They also started really going hog-wild on using CGI on everyday animation. Probably the most obvious example of this is Hades' hair, which is fully computer-generated in the entire film. Now, there's a couple of specific uh, co uh, exceptions to that, like every time he completely lights on fire, the fire is manually drawn. But for the most part, far more use of CGI, and of course the, uh, uh, the Hydra thing, which we'll get to later. But first, let's go ahead and start with the story proper. Now, I mentioned the retelling thing. Disney films have always been retellings of the fairy tales or stories or real-life history that they're based off. That's Disney's stick, right? That's what they do. We're going to do a Disneyfication, that's the actual term, I didn't make that up, of, I don't know, the time when Yoshi decided to conquer the land and go, yeah, yeah. and so they take it, and even though it was this big, horrible, terrifying moment in history, they decide to Disney it up and, you know, add up some slapstick and some carriage and blah, blah, It's the Disneyfication thing, you know what it is. This is the first time they really did a full reimagining, though. What we're seeing here is some of the same names, but otherwise stuff that is completely just based off of the original in a way that it never had been done before. This is also the beginning of a new trend when it comes to Disney stuff, although the directions that will go in tend to be both good and bad, depending on your opinion. I think this one works really well. The most obvious example of this is actually right at the beginning, and of course the intro lets you know right what your info in for right at the beginning. First we have Charlton Heston. 
How many of you knew that was him? I didn't. <laughs> I'll admit it. So Charlton Heston was like, yes, I will give you the narration, just like I would in any other Disney film. And it really does play like any other Disney film. And then the muses interrupt. And they're like, no, no, we understand. And they do this, like, pop gospel song. And that's pretty much the moment it's like, yeah, no, this is different. We're going for a completely different take on this. And I remember seeing this and being like, yeah, okay, I'm with it, I'm with it. <laughs> so we learn a, bit, a little bit of the backstory. You'll also notice, like I said, this is structured not like a Disney film, but like a superhero film. So first we get world building, then we get origin story. So world building, uh, Zeus came and saved the world, lots of holes in the story. I mean, just huge, huge holes in the story. But we do know that the Titans were running about, and there were only four of them. I told you, massive reimagining, right? They were elemental. I'll come back to that later. And then we... What in the world? Uh, we also uh, we see a little bit of the nature of how Olympus and the magic works. Oh, yeah, by the way, you know how I've been keeping track of the level of magic in each of these? This film is, like, overwhelmingly completely filled up to the top with magic. It is overflowing with magic. It is probably the most magic Disney film uh, I don't know if ever, but it's definitely... Well, actually, considering Tarzan and Mulan, of this bundle, it is definitely the most magic. There might be some others in... I, I don't know. You, can you think of one that's more magic-y than this? Because I can't. Anywho. <clears throat> morphic clouds, which we see can make stuff. They make the crib out of it. The pillars are made out of it. It can repair itself. And it can make life. That's kind of messed up. But we see make Pegasus is literally crafted from the clouds by Zeus. So, uh... Yeah. This then leads to... So, the, the morphic clouds thing, though, I bring it up though, because it's a constant stylistic approach when it comes to most of the gods in that they use this kind of swirling, cloudy stuff in order to do, right? I bring this up because Hades actually does the same thing, and we see this from the first time he shows up. It's just, in Hades' case, it's smoke. Now, I hate to complain about this, but Hades is the only evil god here. And he's also evil, which isn't really a Hades thing. But again, reimagining. But it's interesting that Hades really is the only evil god of all of them. All of the others are good. All of them, 100%. <laughs> again, it's a reimagining. I'm with that. But it's an interesting stylistic choice. If you're paying attention, though, I've been pointing out, many of the villains across this franchise tend to be singular in how horrible they are. Like, they, there's, they might have minions, but they are so much worse than their minions, right? That's a pretty common thing. So it seems kind of logical to continue forward the idea of Hades being the evil god. But my point is, unlike all the others, he uses his smoke, and that's what he uses as his shtick. And he does this throughout the film, and I just want to give absolute praise to the animators. There are several scenes that I just gush over because of how they present him and his non-linear way of functioning. Probably my favorite tiny little example is way towards the end of the film. When he's making his deal with Hercules, he's actually standing upside down, uh, like walking forward on his hands on the, the two bars. And he keeps walking past where the bars are, just keeps going off into the air. Just little stuff like that. Anyways, so Hades comes in. Um, his initial motive is made very clear. I work, you lounge, I'm unpopular, you're popular. In its own horrible way, this is actually our first parallel point between Hades and Hercules. Although that plot point hasn't even brought up, brought up yet, but the point is Hades doesn't belong. He is down in the underworld all on his own. 
Where are the other gods? Oh, they're up on Olympus. All of them. Now you might think, well, then maybe he's happy having that whole domain to himself, but as we see, he doesn't really enjoy his job all that much. And he feels that, you know, he should actually be higher up, you know, maybe he should be in charge. I'll talk a little bit more about the motives of Hades later, because I do think it's an interesting point. But what I want to talk about now is Matthew Frewer, excuse me, Matt Frewer. Frewer, oh my god. You probably know him as Max Hedrum. I'll always know him from Star Trek The Next Generation. But he plays Panic, and I just, I never actually knew that before. Oh my god. I mean, I knew Rip Torn, who's awesome. Does a really good job as Zeus, and makes Zeus actually likable, man. That's a feat. If you know anything about Greek mythology, making Zeus likable, whoo, that's impressive. This is also when we see the Fates. Now, the Fates are interesting because they're portrayed as neutral leaning towards evil. They're just doing their jobs, kind of like Hades is, but they're enjoying it. And therein lies the problem. This is also the first time we see the string, and thus, quick a bit of exposition, string of life, snap it with the scissors, dead person is now dead. So, okay. That'll be important for much, much, much later. Um, look at my notes here. Uh... <laughs> Why would the Titans serve Hades? As much as I like this film, and it prob it's probably obvious from my attitude, there's actually some really glaring plot holes in it. Why does Hades presume that simply by releasing the Titans they will work for him? Now, I do have a theory on that. Maybe it's because of the fact that they're so grateful for being released that they'll temporarily do what he wants and usurp Zeus. Okay. Now that they've done that, why would they continue to work for him assuming he succeeds in his plan? It's entirely possible they wouldn't, and he's just uh, not really thinking that far ahead. Just point, pointing that out. Although it's probably worth noting that despite the fact that he shares no physical artistic similarities to the Titans whatsoever, based on presentation, I've heard a theory that he actually is a Titan. I'll get to that later. Anywho, <clears throat> so, um, it makes sense to me that the God of the Dead would have a potion of mortality, since the only thing that defines someone as being mortal is that they can die. So, okay, I'm with it. And we get to see that uh, Zeus baby's strength endures, and now we've got the basic premise. And so, uh, how far into this is this? Oh, actually, we're not there yet, not it. So, okay, base premise, we finally got that point across. Why, why does Zeus decide to just peace out for 18 years? I mean, yes, he eventually, ah, he eventually decides to talk to his son when his son goes to his temple. Why doesn't he ever reach out? Call? You know, hey, dude, what's going on? Just anything? No, nah, okay, whatever, whatever. I mean, it is Zeus. Maybe I'm asking too much. But our first real introduction is, the, and this is not quite the latest introduction in a Disney film, unless, unless you count the Quasimodo thing. But the point is, it isn't until 14 minutes and 30 seconds that finally we get introduced to the main character. Now, this makes sense. Again, we've had to go through his origin story first. So, he is very strong, very fast, very clumsy, very well-meaning, and very um, avoided. No one wants to have anything to do with him, and he clearly just wants to fit in. I think this is the first film I saw that really pushed this thing, and for some reason I've noticed this trend in this era in general, the, the era this film came out, the idea of, I just want to belong with other people, and I have never understood that. I guess I'm just weird, because I, I, I don't 
relate. I've always gotten along with everyone. But why would you just want to be a, like everyone else? I just want to be normal. I just want to be like everyone else. I just want to be like they are. That, I mean, that was a semi-common thing. Not just in animation, just in, in media. In games, books, movies, shows. Anyways. He wants to belong. He wants to go the distance. And we have Wayne Knight there, briefly, which is awesome. So here's the problem. The problem is not that he's clumsy. It's the fact that he has no idea what he's doing. And that's an important narrative point. He is obviously well-meaning, and that's important, because if he wasn't well-meaning, well, I'll get to that in a minute, but his attempts to make things better are what make things worse, because he has no idea what he's doing. Now, that makes sense. But I bring that point up because if he had, at any point in time, just been like, oh, whoops, and then stopped, there would have been a bit of, bit of trouble, but it would have been not over. But no, he tries to get, he tries to help, which causes another wreck. So he tries to fix that, which causes another wreck. So he tries to help that, which causes another wreck, and then he slides into to Wayne Knight and destroys everything. And everything is destroyed because he was running around trying to do something and not having a brain, basically. I'm not saying he should do nothing. What I'm trying to say is that he should recognize that he doesn't know what he's doing. If you, the real-life person, were suddenly put into the pot of the pilot seat of a modern airplane, there's a pretty good chance that knowing you're not qualified for this and getting help would be the correct choice rather than, I'll fix this, I'll fix this, and that's what he does, and then... So the main theme is established, belonging. Now, this is interesting because he goes and he learns the truth of his heritage, blah, blah, blah. And they, they weave it, like, in the middle of the song, in the bridge of the song, which is nice. And he goes to the statue of Zeus. And this is something I don't think I ever noticed before. Nice visual touch. He doesn't belong with his father. I mean, obviously, that's how the film ends. But he's there, and he's talking. He's colored. Oh, that sounds awful. He has coloration. The statue is gray grayscale, right? Because it's a statue. And the statue is this absolutely gigantic thing, and he's this tiny little thing. And there's little tiny inferences here and there as they're interacting, and as, as Hercules is literally sitting on his hand, that show visually that he doesn't actually belong there. It's a nice touch. So, time to be a true hero. Why, why does that... What? That makes no sense. Like, why would being a true hero be the requiring element for you to restore your divinity? I have a theory about that I'll come back to later, although I'll admit the theory does not take into account Hades. So, <clears throat> he goes, he reaches out to Philoctetes, played by Danny DeVito, who does a wonderful role here. And Phil, there's a nice little bit, because Phil, you know, he asks, I want you to train me. No can do, kid. And he, there's like that moment of, Oh, and you can just feel that heartbreak until he finally swallows it and is like, no. And what's funny is he goes into his motive and backstory almost immediately afterwards. And he talks about how his dream was always to have this one hero that he trained, that everyone knew and revered. And they look up and say, that's Phil's boy. Of course, it never happened. So, you know, that, that makes a degree of sense. But finally, he does convince him, look, I, I really do want to go the distance on this. I want to do the best I can. Please. And Phil says, no. Until Zeus personally gets involved and says, and then he's like, okay, fine, sure. Quick aside, you'll notice the storm that was created by Zeus there. 
I only point that out because earlier in the film that happened too, he was so upset at the loss of his son that a storm happened just because he was so upset. Do me a favor and remember that. So, <clears throat> we have a montage, very Lion King style, and this bridges the gap between young Hercules and older Hercules. They don't actually say how long he spends there, but he does spend some time there. And this is the interesting part. Now, I said I'd get back to this. Hercules needs skill and experience to really be able to do the job. But if he didn't have the important part, none of that would have mattered. I know that the whole theme is, you know, true hero, inside, heart, etc. But my point is, one of the things I've said for many, many years, and I'm probably getting a little bit too real for here for a second, is that you need the inside and the outside for it to work. You need to have the power to do it, whether that's skill or experience or money or influence or magic or whatever. And inside, you need to have the right intent, the right means, the right motive, the right... <sighs> means is the wrong word. You need to be doing it for the right reason. Those two things combined can, can make good things happen, can make a hero, to use it into such terminology. Now, this is why I mentioned that thing earlier. Hercules already has the insight. He is a well-meaning person. He does want to help. He does have... It, what's funny is he goes through a bit of a character arc in this film, but not as much of one as you'd think. Actually, Megara goes through a far more substantial character arc than Hercules does. Herc is mostly just coming to understanding, whereas she actually has a full character arc of changing her, changing her method and her personality. But anyways, I'm getting off topic. So he already has the inside, and this then allows him to have the skill to use the power he has to have the outside. He also noticed Phil sticks with it despite everything. Why do you think that is? Oh, don't mistake me. By the end of the film, I have no doubt that Phil cares. No doubt at all. But at the beginning of the film, do you think it's the fact that he really did believe, you know, that Hercules had a good heart, like I've already told you? Or do you think it was just selfish? That this was his last shot? He says that several times in the song. This is my last chance. This is my last attempt to make this work. Dear God, let this work. By the way, three pages of notes on this one. Longest yet. I'm going to laugh if this is a short video. Then we see Nessus and Hercules and Meg. Now, this is when Megara is introduced to the series, or excuse me, to the, to the film. And the first thing that we see about her is she is basically the opposite of how most of the Disney... I shouldn't say the opposite, but she's definitely different than most Disney princesses have been portrayed as. That makes sense. She's not a Disney princess. Literally, as well as figuratively. Uh, in fact, I think... Mulan would be the next one that's a Disney princess? I'm pretty sure they skip over this entirely. I could be wrong about that. I'll have to watch Wreck-It Ralph 2 again to figure it out. Or ask my niece. The point is, she comes across not only as a woman, emphasis difference there, but as someone who can completely handle herself. There's no... Uh, in fact, funnily enough, with one very small exception, she's never actually a damsel in distress. Which is interesting. Now, what she is... Well, she's an obstacle. <laughs> I know that sounds horrible, but she is literally an obstacle to Hercules because of the fact that she works for Hades. And there's also the fact that she's, well, like I said, she's got a character arc. Notice right off the beginning, we can start to see bits and foreshadowing this. There's this bit where, uh, hate, there's this bit after the battle I'm about to talk about, where Meg is talking to Hades, and she says, oh, he had this whole innocent farm boy routine, but I saw right through him. 
early foreshadowing for her character arc right there. And it says a lot about her mentality at this point in history that she sees the earnest, bumpkiss Hercules as if he's just trying to pull some kind of shtick, trying to trick her, trying to manipulate her. And it says a lot about where her mindset is right now. So Hercules decides to go after this, and um, this incident is what actually puts Hercules on Hades' map. Granted, he would probably end up on that map anyways, concerning what he's going to Thebes to do, but this is what officially makes him a problem for Hades, so that's fun. And Hercules is very smitten with Meg. Now, for once, I can't blame him. I mean, those hips, but no. It does make sense. Why? He's never had a girlfriend. He's been alone training for a long time. She's not only an attractive woman, but more to the point, she can talk circles around him. Now, I bring up that last point because one of the important things for uh, Disney romances, in my opinion, is the two have to be equals, and they aren't always. In this film, I do think Meg does come across as an equal to Herc. She has the ability to do everything he doesn't, obviously, but she has the ability to keep up with him and, like I said, talk circles around him. And she does literally save his life later, so that's relevant, too. Anywho... <clears throat> So they go to the Big Olive, where they had a firequake and flood, Oedipus reference, and then <laughs> they demand a resume, and that, that's just how that always works, isn't it? Oh, let's see here. <clears throat> well, I'm afraid we're going to need five years' experience for you to work this job, but it's a starter position. Yes, five years' experience. Get out of my office. <laughs> but, of course, something comes up. Woo! And Hades eats worms. Why does Hades eat worms? It's okay, someone call IXII, and it'll all I'm sorry, that's one of my favorite little gags in this. Um, so the Hydra. The Hydra is interesting, because in the first fight, he barely defeats the Hydra, and it's very difficult for him to do so. But he manages it, and people are like, yeah, okay, that was kind of impressive. Then a thunderstorm starts. I don't think I ever noticed that before. I mean, obviously I noticed it because, you know, dramatic fight in the, the rain, obviously. But no, I mean, a thunderstorm starts in a film where every single thunderstorm we see is specifically started by Zeus. Now, do you think it was because he was angry at what Hades was doing? Do you think it was because he was, you know, just upset at his hurt son? This is my personal favorite. Do you think it was because he was trying to warn him, trying to be like, look, look, get up, get up. And you'll notice the thunderstorm goes away the second he ends up defeating the... the well, the second he gets out of the claw, actually. But, you know, he defeats the Hydra for good, and the thunderstorm fades. I also have to give special props. Even though it doesn't really look like it's aged all that well, almost all the Hydra heads are uh, computer animated, and apparently was an incredible nightmare to make, by the way. They had almost 30-something heads in several scenes simultaneously. Yeah, that's a rendering job. <sighs> Anywho, <clears throat> so... This is interesting. So the, so the first thing we see, storm, storm clears, and Meg, she's not happy for him, but she's like, okay, not bad. She gives a very light clap. I'm only pointing this out because, as I said, her character arc has already begun, and she's starting to... Because the point of her character arc is the difference between idealism and cynicism. Not pragmatism, cynicism. She starts off as a hardcore cynic. And this is her starting to be like, oh, okay. Just the beginnings of it. So this then leads to the montage. Now I wrote these down. 
this is him getting the experience he needs to kind of match up the, the heart I mentioned earlier. Uh, he ends up fighting the Lemian Hydra, the Nemean Lion, the... I don't know how to pronounce all these, by the way. Aramanthian Boar, the Stymphalian Bird, the uh, the Huggiest king, king wants him to go clean the stables. He also wants to get some girdle from some Amazons. All of these are references to the, the tasks of Heracles, or whatever the hell it's actually called, by the way. He also goes after a Minotaur and a Gorgon and a Griffin thing, it looks like. Tons of merchandise, of course. Tons of money. Tons of power. And this is when we finally get the backstory for Megara. She's been amused this whole time, but ultimately she's still just kind of not really involved. Then we find out that once upon a time she loved someone. She loved him so much, she was willing to give up her life, sacrifice herself to Hades for him, and then he dumps her for some babe. Yeah, that would do a number on you. I, I freely admit, if, like, I don't know, my mother, I'm trying to think of someone I love very, very much, if my sister, if I sacrificed myself to Hades for my sister and she just peaced out, I mean, obviously that's not romantic because I don't have anyone that I'm that connected to romantically, but you get the idea. That would hurt so hard. And it's no wonder that she is the way she is. And a nice little touch, she's holding a vase with Hercules' face on it. And um, when he offers her his freedom, her, when he offers her her freedom, she gasps, drops the vase, and it shatters. We don't see it, but we hear it. Nice touch. I also have to admit, the funniest scene in the film is at, at this point. It's the merchandise scene, and you are wearing this merchandise. They just turn. He's sipping. from. Anyways, <clears throat> so this leads to Herc, who is getting really bothered by all this. Now, I want to mention something that's interesting. Hercules is obviously like, this is all pointless. I mean, this is nice, and I've got money, and I've got people, but this, I, I, it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't feel anything. I want to go to my home. I don't want to be with my people, and... Phil, I, I gave it my best, Phil. I thought this would do it. Because remember, Zeus tells him, yeah, you're not ready, dude. You didn't do it yet. I'll come back to that point, I swear. So, Phil is comforting. I think by this point, Phil gives a damn. I, I think I could say that fairly firmly. If nothing else, his experience with Herc has gotten him to care. And he's like, look, it's okay, you know, we'll... We'll make this through. You've, you've, you've got it, kid. And you'll make it. Oh, God. Fangirls. Fangirls. Uh, plan B. I could fully believe that someone like Hercules has to have multiple escape plans for fangirls. No, I really can. We have, you think we have fangirls in real life. Imagine someone like Hercules walking around with all that charisma and all that popularity. Oh, and he's also a superhero. <laughs> I'm surprised they've never done a fangirl thing with, like, Superman. They did one with Darth Vader. Seriously, you should read that comic. It's really messed up. Anyways. <clears throat> so, they do a bit... I almost regret this, but I get why they did it. Again, funding issues. They skip right over an entire day. Meg shows up, they go play hooky, and they spend an entire day just having fun. They reference some of the stuff they do, but they don't actually show any of it. This is good, but also bad. Here's the problem. As with most Disney romances, these two fall in love basically immediately. In fact, I paid attention. They have three major interactions before they're officially in love. 
starting to be a trend, ain't it? Whatever. Disney romance problem. I will say one thing. This romance actually feels better than any of the others I've seen so far. And I think part of it is the fact that he immediately starts to be like, Oh, she's so pretty. But then he starts to like her for who she is, her personality, in short. And that's what makes him, what makes her appealing to him. You'll notice that he is actually quite a gentleman, even though he is intimidated by her. He is nevertheless liking her for something other than her beauty. This also leads to her, who likes him not just because he's got rickling pectorals, which, as we've already pointed out, doesn't do anything for her, because she's seen those from the start, but rather because he's a genuinely nice person who is actually a good person on top of that. And that's something that helps to melt her cynicism. Put simply, I feel there's better chemistry between these two than basically all of the previous ones to date, in the, the Renaissance at least. Not that all of them were bad, but this one, I was like, wow, this is kind of impressive. And again, the major story isn't really him falling in love with her. It is her falling in love with him. They even have an entire song about it. And a nice little line, at least out loud, I won't say I am in love. Now, I, I just want to lead one line here, too, by the way. When he talks about how much he enjoys being with her, he says, when I'm with you, I don't feel like I'm that alone. Now, obviously, this is part of his where I belong thing. But I bring that up because it helps to emphasize a point that all of the rest of the time, when he's with all these other people, even his friends, he still feels alone. So, <clears throat> I'm, I'm tempted to make a joke here, but I am trying to be sincere. Okay, one joke. For hips like that, I'd reject divinity too. Okay, there's the joke. Seriously, though, you can tell that there's something approaching actual affection here rather than just physical attraction. I like that. This then leads, excuse me, to Hades bursting out in the middle of a statue of a man and a woman. Symbolism. And this is when the film gets a little clever, because earlier, as uh, they were flying away, Phil ends up accidentally smacking into a tree and falling. And it's, it's played as slapstick, right? <sighs> yeah, no, that was a plot point, because now he's here to hear her say something that, taken out of context, means that she is the servant of Hades. And, of course, naturally, in typical format, he does not hear her say, I refuse to hurt him. Notice that Phil isn't happy about this, by the way. Phil has been against her from the beginning, and yet now, now that he finally has proof that she's bad, he's discouraged, he's depressed. Oh, God, he's not going to like this. I think that, more than anything else, really helps to emphasize how much he has grown to care about him. So... <clears throat> Phil goes back. This is actually the beginning of the first finale. I'll talk about that in a moment. And uh, things start to go really badly here. The argument they get into is pretty rough and pretty raw. In my experience, there's two types of arguments between people. One is just a toxic, disastrous mess, which can be caused by all sorts of things. But the second, the second is a toxic, disastrous mess because the people care. You care more, therefore you get more emotionally invested, therefore you yell, you get angry, you, you rage, you, you push farther than you should because, damn it, don't you understand? And this helps to showcase how much Phil does care. And you'll notice the second Phil leaves, Hades is there. Very well animated, as I already pointed out. Hades could have also killed Hercules right here. He doesn't. Instead, he insists on trying to pour salt into the wound. That's 
that's going to cost him a little bit later on. This is also when something comes in that hasn't really come in yet. Rules magic. The idea is Hades tends to do his thing via deals and contracts, right? But unlike Ursula, who literally had a physical contract, these contracts are basically oral. I do this, under this, blah, blah, blah. Shake on it. And when he shakes on it, the deal is made. But the rules magic does apply. His divinity is temporarily leached out of him. And it comes back the moment Meg comes to harm. Because the second it was done, the rule applied. So you can kind of see the thing there. So, right, right, right. The elementals, the titans. So first of all, we see the titans and they're awesome. This is actually, no joke, my favorite take on titans ever. I have, in fact, based my own Titans, which is a species within my setting, in part based of ideas that were inspired by these Titans. I just love the concept of giant elemental Titans. And notice the animation work really helps to emphasize how gargantuan these things are. Towering over entire planes of buildings. It's just very, very well done, and it's just, I wanted to give special praise to that. Now, uh... I'm going to talk about the initial assault in a minute, because it's more relevant in a minute. But right now, Meg, who is just like, oh my god, what have I done? What have I done? She goes back, she frees Pegasus, and she goes to recruit Phil. Why? Well, because Hercules... Now, this is interesting. Hercules goes to fight Polyphemus. Now, that is very interesting to me. Because he does it with this determined look on his face, but all he says as to why he's doing it is... There are worse things than dying. You know, she says, you'll die. There are worse things. Yeah, ain't that the truth? So he goes off to fight, but he doesn't even try. Why does he? He's basically just giving up. He has quit because he has no more reason to attempt. Now, what's interesting is Meg tries to cock him into it, but fails. So Meg goes for Phil. If you don't help him now, he'll die. And Phil just stops, dead in his tracks. There is no doubt in my mind that at that point in time, Phil loves Hercules. Probably like a son. And just, yes, okay, yes, go, we're going to do this. We're going, ah, oh, come on, kid, come on, kid. And it is Phil returning back from him, and Phil not giving up on him. That is what really rejuvenates Hercules. And then Hercules, who I remind you, has had years of experience and skill and practice puts all that into effect. He doesn't have his powers anymore, but he doesn't need them, at least not under the right circumstances. Because, every, remember, <laughs> he had within, he had without, and all of that enables him to bypass his limitation. So he defeats Polyphemus without special powers. This, of course, leads to Meg getting hurt, which leads to instantaneous break in the contract and him getting his powers back. Now, what happened just prior to these scenes is the Titans charge Mount Olympus, right? And the entire army of the gods, fully armed and fully ready for them, knowing they're coming, fight them. And you know what they do? They lose in seconds. It's pathetic. Then, what happens next is Hercule goes up, and I wrote it down. So first he frees the gods from the chains, then he frees Zeus, and all of a sudden the gods beat the crap out of the Titans. And the Titans actually flee. What? In fact, it's played as slapstick. The final, the final fight is portrayed as if it's a comedy. Ever since I first saw this the first time, this has bugged the crap out of me. 
What does he add to the equation? What's different now that Hercules is there? Nothing. Nothing has changed. Nothing is different. They have, it's, it's like, I, I, ugh, this drives me insane because it's like as if you had this massive army and this oncoming force and you're like, charge, and then you lose them immediately. And then you're imprisoned, but then you're released and then you charge and then you win effortlessly. There's no logic to that. And this is, I've always felt like this is by far the weakest part of the film. Now, I get that this isn't the actual climax, which is the point I was making. This isn't the real finale. This isn't the real final battle. This is the fake final battle. This is just stopping Zeus, or excuse me, Hades' plans and forcing him to go back. Now, the real final battle begins, now this is, this is where I like this film a lot. Because after this cartoony slapstick nonsense, then he has to go back and Meg dies. Now, they do some very smart things here. Cinematically speaking. First, he's charging back. He's got to get back to her in time. Even though him reaching her shouldn't technically have any difference. But he's got to get back to her in time. And it's so th they're, they're so high-paced about the, the way they're showing, showing it that you think that if he gets there in time, he'll save her. That's how these scenes are usually portrayed. But they slowly pull out the string, and they slowly pull up the scissors. And this is just like any other scene in so many other movies or games or books or, or shows or whatever, right? The last-minute rescue. And then, snap! Cuts the line. She dies. I remember in the theaters being like, what? <laughs> what? Okay. And she does die. They, they pull the rug out from under you. Nope. He didn't get there in time. No last-minute rescue. This then leads to him going after Hades. Now, this is the actual final fight. And what I love about this is this is the core theme of the entire movie. No, really. I mean, belonging is a big part, but no, it's about this and about actually being someone who is, to put it bluntly, worthy you see, it would be easy for the final fight to be against a giant monster or a, a towering titan or, you know, Cerberus, or which you notice he tames effortlessly. Nice reference there. Or just, you know, big, oh, I will defeat the final villain, yes. But he defeats Hades by successfully being a better person than him and outmaneuvering him. Now, yes, there is a punch at the end there, but you get my point. In short, if you remember, earlier on in the film, he was like, okay, I need to be a great hero, and I'll defeat all these monsters, and that'll make me a hero. No. That's not what it was about. I love this, because this really does invert this whole thing, and it just it, it completely subverts expectations. I hate using that phrase because it's so misused nowadays. But it does, because the whole point is the way he does it, and what he does not, what big monster he defeats. He can do that ten times out of ten while on the way to get a stroll to pick up a nice Slurpee. That's not a big deal. You know what is a big deal? Sacrificing yourself for the sake of another. Yeah, that's a pretty big deal. And so he makes the deal, turns it on him, going once, going twice. And <laughs> he, he goes into the, 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 the river of souls. Now, quick aside before I move forward. I've always gotten the impression that Hades doesn't do his job. That in short, he is not actually taking care of the souls of the dead like he is supposed to. Instead, he just puts them into this giant muck pile and lets them sit there because screw them. Because they're dumb and uncouth. Right? 
It's an interesting way to think about things because it means that not only is he not really a god in the sense that the other ones are, but he's also negligent, which brings me to the Titan theory. Before I forget to talk about it, the theory goes, first of all, the big point of evidence is he specifically calls the Titans brothers. There's also the fact that he is completely different from every other god except for the ghost, or the, the, the smoke thing, the cloud thing. That's the only direct parallel. Otherwise, he comes across as completely different than the rest of the gods, right? The idea here is Hades, the implication is that Hades is someone who was basically tasked with taking care of the underworld as a job, as a punishment by Zeus, in, as a consequence of him being in, you know, in cahoots with or one of the Titans. And I know what you're thinking, well, the Titans are all elemental. Polyphemus was down there too, remember? The Cyclops? He's not a... I mean, he's big, and all of them are big, and Hades is not big. And I'll grant you all of that. It's just interesting to think about, because it kind of helps to show how Hades is completely different from the others. And yes, I know it completely breaks with the mythos, but if you haven't been paying attention, the entire film completely breaks with the mythos. I'm not saying I completely believe it, but it is an interesting thought exercise. So then... They pull the string, and there's the tense music, and they pull the scissors, and this time they play it straight. Doesn't work. Last minute thing. Nope, he comes out. This leads me to my other theory. Now, this is mine. I think divinity in this particular setting is something that is an earned state. That you have to, well, I've already said it, you have to be worthy. You have to earn being divine. And you can't just do that you know, by being a decent person. You don't, can't just do that by being strong or being monsters or whatever. It takes something very unique and very special to earn such a thing. Now, this would help to explain some of how the other gods work and why there's, you know, certain ones of them and they don't really... I, I, I get that this doesn't really work perfectly, but I like the idea because it helps to explain away some of the issues with the plot. This could also help to explain why Zeus, who clearly has no problem with a mortal being on his mountain, since it happens twice, once with his son and once with Meg. But it would help to explain why they feel that you need to work up to this kind of a thing. It also serves as a very weird parallel for puberty, if you want to think of it that way. But regardless of that, I like that idea enough that I could see that being used probably in like some other kind of a thing, right? I know, it's all stupid. Moving on, moving on. So he earns it, and he finally goes home and realizes where he belongs. This would have a little more weight of it if I could believe the romance, but like I said, at least it's better than most of them. And again, that's always been the point, that he doesn't belong on Olympus. And the last thing I want to say is Film's dream really actually comes through finally. That's Film's boy. <laughs> I really like this film. It's got a lot of cool elements. It's a superhero story. Um, you know, very, very well-designed artwork and approach. But as per usual for this duo and this team, there's a lot of subtlety and a lot of nuance here and there that I admit I didn't even see all of that until this particular playthrough, or, excuse me, watch-through. You know what I mean. I hope you've enjoyed my thoughts on this one, guys. I'll see you next time.